COP26 summit progress. This is the moment of truth where the pressure is really on the negotiators to achieve tangible results. Some have instructions to be ambitious, others have instructions, I'm sure, to block ambition in certain areas. Future submarines. And the problem is that if the follow-on nuclear submarine really does take until 2040 or thereabouts, we're going to, best case, have 40-plus-year-old submarines going around as our um, national submarine capability. And vaccine passports. And I think as soon as you start saying something is digital, there's this immediate sort of distrust that then feeds misinformation and disinformation. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. The first week of Glasgow's COP26 summit is over, and we have seen a number of countries make landmark promises to help mitigate the effects of climate change. Dr. Robert Glasser and Anastasia Kapetis discuss these commitments, Australia's position during the conference, and what's in store for the remainder of the summit. Hello, Anastasia. Good to be with you again to talk about climate change in the time of the Glasgow COP. Thanks, Robert. Always good to be chatting with you about climate change and security. And of course, this is again a big week. We're just going to round up some of the big announcements from COP and what they might mean going forward in, in the next year. So, Robert, at this stage in the COP process, it's probably really important to understand that it's really the leaders have just shown up, they've said their piece, they've flown away, but now the real work begins. Yeah, absolutely. I've been to a couple of these COP meetings and yes, this is when the negotiating happens. I mean, of course, it's been happening in the year leading up to the COP, right. but this is the moment of truth where the pressure is really on the negotiators to achieve tangible results. Some have instructions to be ambitious. Others have instructions, I'm sure, to block ambition in certain areas. Um, but this is where the tire hits the road. We'll see now at the end. And usually these things go into extended periods of negotiation. And uh, so we have some initial announcements that are really encouraging, but the actual result will await the end of the COP. So probably a lot more of interest to come over the next two weeks. Absolutely. Which we'll be talking about. So we had the leaders arrive, make their presentations one after the other, and then depart, leaving the negotiations now in the hands of senior officials. I guess we should start with what's the good news in terms of what's been achieved so far? That's right. What's your number one piece of good news from the Leader Summit? Ooh, from the Leader Summit, it would have to be India's announcement. I think that really surprised everyone. Everyone was hoping India would come with a net zero announcement, and they did. Modi committed to net zero by 2070, which... I think most of the press coverage focused on that target and commenting that, wow, that's a long way down the road and isn't he just kicking the can down the road and not serious about reductions? But actually, the short-term targets he committed to as well are phenomenal. For example, he committed to 500 gigawatts of non-fossil fuel electricity capacity by 2030, which will require them to triple the present non-fossil fuel capacity in less than a decade, which is amazing. And they also committed to a 50% electrical energy coming from renewables by 2030. The current figure is 20%. So that also is a huge commitment. It raises questions about whether they can actually deliver it, but it's really remarkable. 
Really, it's remarkable and, and really makes sense for Modi politically, I think, as well. If he can pull this off in a few major cities, that is the electrification of transport and decreasing all sorts of emissions in India, I think you know this is an incredibly popular move. And I think the other thing this does is it signals to the international markets, please pour your renewable money into India. Yep. And that will actually give boosts to renewable investment everywhere, I think. I think also uh, some of our listeners who've been following the climate debate through the Paris COP and the Copenhagen COPs, previous ones, would be aware that the climate treaty and negotiation systems have treated countries like India and China differently from OECD wealthy countries. And if we had said in Copenhagen or even in Paris that China would commit to net zero by 2060, that India would commit to net zero by 2070, that would be just absolutely astounding to people. And so I think there's a tendency for us to assume that India and China are like the US and Australia in (laughs) terms of what we expect from them. But it really is, if you have that historical perspective, an outstanding change. So some other good news uh, was agreements on deforestation and methane. What's the significance of those? First of all, there are the Paris Climate Agreement negotiations around reductions in greenhouse gases, financing for adaptation and mitigation, loss and damage. Those are part of the formal COP. But at usual at these meetings, there are coalitions of countries that make statements that further the climate action and ambition. And these are examples, the methane commitment, the deforestation, the commitment to reverse deforestation, a commitment by many countries to phase out coal. Now, Australia hasn't signed up to the coal or methane commitments, but we have joined in the forestry commitment that's been made. And they are significant because they will result in funding, for example, from wealthy countries to less developed countries to help prevent deforestation and will also affect, I think, deforestation issues domestically in many countries. So let's just quickly touch on coal, the coal commitment. Before we do that, can I just highlight one other bit of good news? And then I have a feeling the coal is bad news. (laughs) But the one other bit of good news is that we have 70 countries globally that have now committed to net zero by 2050, which again is a year ago, that would have seemed impossible. And most of the OECD has done that. Secondly, the new round of commitments means that, you know, a year and a half ago, organizations that track greenhouse gases emissions would have said, we are on track, given the commitments countries have made, to between three and four degrees of warming. Now those same organizations are saying we're on track, still not great, but on track for 2.7 degrees of warming. Sounds like a little change, but that degree and a half or so has a huge impact on society and a far weaker climate impact. So that's good news. That is good news. And actually, just to backtrack to some more probably good news, and that is commitments towards the global south. There seems to have been a lot more energy behind those commitments. And I'm just going to draw attention to one, which is the EU-UK partnership with South Africa to reduce emissions in South Africa. To my mind, at least, this seems to be, and more details will be hammered out over the next week, but agreements like this seem to be very necessary in working with regions to reduce emissions. And I'm thinking for Australia, particularly Southeast Asia. Yeah, huge um, fossil fuel emitter and also uh, exporter in the case of Indonesia. Yeah, what do you think the odds are of a major 
support for Indonesia, for example, to move from fossil fuels, support domestically in Indonesia or from outside the region, uh, from Australia for that matter, to help them make that transition? Look, at the moment, I think the odds aren't good, but it's probably something that we actually need to do and think about pretty quickly. Yep. What about the bad news? So, of course, there's always bad news when it comes to climate commitments. So, I suppose the bad news is is really around coal. I think there were hopes that all countries would sign up to a, a no more coal kind of a pledge, and that didn't happen. And some of the, you know, of course, some of the really major coal users and producers didn't sign up, and those happened to be, you know, some of the world's biggest emitters, like China, the US, Australia, India, Japan, Korea didn't join that statement, yeah. even though Japan and Korea, their big banks and pension funds have made no coal kind of commitments or, or no new financing for coal at least. And of course, the International Energy Agency has produced a report that timed to coincide more or less with the Glasgow meeting that highlighted, and this is a very conservative international organization, it's not a left-wing organization by any means, how we really need to create no new coal-fired plants. We need to keep coal in the ground or it will be impossible to achieve the 1.5 degree limit on warming that countries committed to in the Paris Agreement. That's right. So coal commitment is critical. It didn't achieve what it needed to at this meeting, at least. Now, maybe some other bad news. One is that 2.7 degrees of warming It's an improvement, but it is still catastrophic according to the science. It would have huge geopolitical impacts, huge impacts on Australia's regional security, but also, of course, domestic impacts, as we've now seen with Black Summer last year. So that's a really bad one. And I think we should also point out that when people say net zero by 2050, even if we achieve net zero by 2050, that target assumes that we have a 50% chance of achieving net zero by 2050. If we really wanted to have like a 70 or 80% chance, we'd really need to achieve net zero emissions by 2040, 10 years earlier, which would be extraordinarily difficult. So basically what you're saying is the international timelines are off. They're They're not linked to the science or the risk. It's a political target that has been set. And apropos of that, you and I have both been looking at some graphic that a colleague, Andy Pittman at University of New South Wales, was sharing recently, which has carbon emissions over time from 1960, and they're all going up and up. You see a little teeny dip in the trend, which is the global financial crisis. And then a little later, the most recent actual result, you see a COVID dip, and it's a relatively small amount. But then looking to the future, that same chart shows the reduction pathways necessary to keep warming to 1.5 degrees. And it is this enormous dip that dwarfs those other two examples of reductions in carbon emissions. So basically what you're saying is that we kind of need at least the equivalent cuts of another COVID or GFC every year. That's exactly that's what it amounts to that the challenge is so great and it's a bit daunting when you see that reduction required and the reason that steep drop is required is because we didn't act earlier if we actually took the climate science seriously when it was first pointed out with fairly high confidence and we started implementing the changes then it would have been a more gradual slope but we've left it too late 
which also relates then to our own prime minister's commitment to net zero by 2050 and no change in reduction for 2030. That's right. So, I mean, a credible roadmap for countries really involves steep cuts from now in coal and fossil fuel use. That's right. And the shift, in fact, at this global meeting, the COP that's underway currently, is from a focus on 2050, net zero by 2050, to really what are you going to do by 2030. And most of the OECD countries have committed to quite significant additional decreases by 2030. And unfortunately, Australia hasn't. The prime minister has said that he expects our current commitment, which is 26 to 28% reduction by 2030, to actually be 35%. But in the same breath, he says, but we're going to stick with our existing Paris commitment of 26 to 28%. So yes, not a lot of urgent short-term action. So I think this is an issue, isn't it? Because it's really the developed economies that have the capacity to help the globe really decarbonise quickly. And if they don't do it, certainly the developing world can't do it. And this was expressed in a comment from Belize at COP. And they said, look, you know, we're so frustrated with the G20, for example. Every dollar that, you know, Belize invests in climate action is cancelled out by five times by G20 investment in oil and gas. Yeah, that's an interesting statement. And Australia is exceptionally vulnerable to climate impacts, both domestically, as we saw with Black Summer, and those events are going to increase in frequency, but also because of the extreme exposure and vulnerability of countries in our immediate region, as you and I have discussed before. So we have absolute enormous incentive, and it's fundamentally in our national interest to advocate for more ambitious action to reduce greenhouse gases and to help our neighbours do that. Of course, it's hard to do that when our action doesn't seem ambitious. And although the Prime Minister's net zero by 2050 announcement is an important step in the right direction, it's probably not enough to raise the credibility of our own advocacy globally on this issue. So just to summarise, I guess what COP has shown us is that a whole bunch of governments have come a long way, and that's a really good thing. But overall, governments are lagging behind markets and publics on, on climate change. Yeah, absolutely. I think now if we look at global asset managers, if we look at financial regulators, if we look at public opinion, as you've pointed out before, all of those forces are moving more ambitiously and actually making fundamental changes at a much faster rate than the governments are making those changes. Of course, governments could accelerate that if there were commitment to do that. And the science certainly suggests, given the risks, that they should be absolutely raising ambition. The challenge is it hasn't yet happened and is unlikely to have happened by the time the delegates leave Glasgow. So I guess that means that we'll be waiting for further developments over the next 12 months. Yes, with bated breath. Thanks, Anastasia. Thanks, Robert. With the government's recent announcement that it will acquire nuclear-powered submarines and cancel the attack class program, it looks like defence will be waiting until the late 2030s until the first submarine is in service. Defence capability experts Dr Marcus Hellyer and Dr Andrew Davies consider the benefits of nuclear-powered submarines and discuss Australia's potential naval capability gaps and how these might be addressed. 
Hello, everyone. Well, I'm sitting here with Andrew Davies, sort of one of Aspie's leading lights from days gone past, but still a regular contributor to Aspie's work. And for the benefit of listeners at home, Andrew is wearing a magnificent yellow submarine T-shirt, so he is all primed to talk about submarines. And good afternoon, Andrew. Hello, Marcus. Well, I've been dying to ask you a question, and, and that is... I have here in my hand a piece from the Aspie strategist that you wrote in 2018, and it is called The Aggregate Failure of Australia's Submarine Policy. So you wrote that almost three years ago to the day. Since then, we've had more developments, probably most particularly the SSN announcement. So I guess my question is, is the policy failure now worse or are we finally starting to address it? I think the way I'd characterise that is to say that the capability outcome that's being aimed for has improved, but the risk of a catastrophic failure of the entire national submarine capability has gone through the roof. Those are pretty strong words. What would that catastrophic failure look like? Because Defence has been pretty consistent in saying they can manage the columns through to whenever it is the SSNs arrive. Well, let's be clear, they haven't done the Collins Life of Type Extension yet, and that looks like a major engineering undertaking in its own right. Basically involves re-engineering the propulsion system of the Collins class. Hopefully that will go smoothly, it won't be cheap, it won't be easy. Like most defence things, the chances are that it will take longer and cost more than they think at the moment. And the problem is that if the follow-on nuclear submarine really does take until 2040 or thereabouts, we're going to, best case, have 40-plus-year-old submarines going around as our um, national submarine capability. Yeah, to me that's the challenge, is that that's the best-case scenario. What's a plausible worst-case scenario? Uh, The plausible worst-case scenario is that by 2035 we have essentially no functional submarines and no submarine workforce. That's a pretty catastrophic scenario. I guess my view is probably somewhere in between, and that is we will be able to keep the Collins going, but as a platform entering its late 30s and into its 40s, you're going to have a drop-off in availability. So you're not going to have as many sea days, which means you can't train as many submariners. So precisely at the time you're trying to increase your submariner force by two or three times, you actually have less capacity to do that. Yes, I think that's right. And lest I sound too Cassandra-like about this, just remember that when we had the relatively easier transition between two conventional classes in the form of the Oberon to the Collins, we got down to having two functional submarines and we had a hit to the submarine manpower because people decided there were better things to do than sitting around without a submarine to ride in that we are still recovering from 20 years later. So it's not an inconsiderable risk. Mm, The workforce one to me is probably the biggest one. I mean, we can build submarines here. If you throw enough money at it and enough time and have enough assistance from our partners, you can eventually build some submarines. The question is... How do you get there in terms of time and workforce? So, What are some of the other risks that you can foresee? Well, there's the strategic risk. I'm not the only aspect commentator. I know that you've said this as well. Mark Thompson said it when he was here. And Michael Shoebridge and Peter Jennings have all said it. That The strategic outlook says that the next 10 years could be extremely challenging. And again, best case scenario, we don't get these new submarines for 15 to 20 years. 
Mm. Yeah, that's concerning. The other bit of the narrative that I find a little concerning is that we see defence again and again saying there won't be a capability gap because we can nurse the Collins through all the way to 2040 and beyond. But I think that's sort of measuring the gap against the wrong baseline. So if we go back to 2009, the White Paper said we wanted to get to 12 submarines and we'd get the first one around 2025. So in a sense, the, the target for submarine capability is 12 submarines, not six submarines. So eking six columns out is already a capability gap because we should have been beyond that by 2025. Yes, I think that's right. But the one saving grace of the situation is that you've always got to remember not to talk about the platform, but to talk about the effect that's being delivered. So submarines do a couple of major roles. One is long-distance ISR and the other is long-distance strike and maritime interdiction. That's why we built a submarine that could go long distances and do what it does in the form of the Collins and what a nuclear submarine does. But if we want to deliver those effects, submarines are not the only way to do it. And there's no such thing as a capability that's worth any cost. So one of the things that we will need to think about doing is, are there other ways of getting that long-range strike capability, either through missile systems or long-range aircraft? That's exactly right. And that gets me to a point I wanted to raise. And in one of the really key moments, I think, of recent Senate estimates hearings yesterday, it almost went unnoticed and it was quite short, but Senator Molan asked a really interesting question of defence. And he said, what are the effects that submarines deliver that can't be delivered by any other platform? And the Chief of Navy answered it and said, well, there aren't any except maybe persistence. And then the Secretary and CDF sort of expanded on that. So it was almost an Emperor's New Clothes kind of moment where you sort of go, well, why are we so obsessed with submarines when all of the effects they can deliver can be delivered by other platforms? Now, I think a submarine is a really neat package to be able to deliver all of those effects, whether it's strike or anti-submarine warfare or surveillance or any of those sorts of things. But each of those individual effects can probably be delivered in other ways. So it does sort of raise that question of why are we so hung up on submarines? I've never quite understood our almost fetish with submarines. Well, I've been a fan of a submarine capability, although, as I said, it's not at any cost. But the word persistence that was mentioned there, don't go past that too quickly. Persistence is important. If an adversary thinks that their surface units or submarines or important facilities near the coast are always at risk and have to deploy anti-submarine capabilities, sensors, platforms, you know, 24-7, that's a considerable impost on them, even before you've done anything by way of hostile action. Mm -hmm. So persistence is important, and you don't get persistence from missile systems, for example. You don't get that resource impost on the adversary. I I think that's what submarines really give you. Mm -hmm. Now, another of your previous publications, which I think was very good and quite accurate in hindsight, was your cost estimate for the future submarine 
project. I think way back in, was it 2009, you did an early estimate for the future submarine program for 12 submarines of a slightly larger size than Collins. And, you know, I've gone back to that a number of times and I think it was broadly correct, even though you copped a bit of flack at the time for people suggested you are over stating the cost, but I think you're about right. So what's your sense of the cost of an SSN fleet? Well, let's start with the best possible cost, and that is the cost of construction in a UK or US shipyard. And you look at the sail-away costs of the Astute class and the Virginia class. If we're talking about eight submarines, we're best case looking at 40 to $50 billion dollars. But the total cost of acquisition goes far beyond the cost of just buying the piece of hardware that rolls off the assembly line. Rule of thumb, you can double that. Mm. So I think we're looking 80 to 100 billion. And then there's all. In constant dollars. In constant dollars. So comparing that to the $50 billion number for the attack class. Yeah, roughly twice. I think that's quite conceivable. I think, you know, in my experience of cost estimation, the total cost is somewhere between 50 to 100% more than the cost of the equipment itself. And you tend to be at the higher end the more you're talking about a change in the nature of the capability or generational leap in capability. So I would say, yes, $50 billion probably for the submarines themselves. And then once you factor in everything else on top of that involved in operating a viable SSN capability then $100 billion constant dollars is not out of the question. And then when you outturn that, you get into the kind of 180-type numbers. So it is a massive investment. It is, it is. But the payoff is high as well. But you have to be able to convince yourself that the two are commensurate. As I said, nothing is worth it at any cost. But let me go back to one of the benefits that I think we get immediately, like today, from this new arrangement, and that is it's a first-rate piece of alliance signalling within the ANZUS context, saying to the United States, we're prepared to do the hard yards, put our money where our alliance relationship is, and get serious about providing real naval capability in the theatre that you're interested in. That's a payoff we're getting now before we've even actually done anything. Mm -hmm. I agree with you on that and I think you know there's been a lot of speculation about will we go with the astute class or the Virginia class my own view it might actually not be either of them it could be the boat that comes after but to me what I think is pretty clear is that if this is all about developing more capability alliance capability in the Indo-Pacific you want to be working select the major partner who is in the Indo-Pacific dealing with the same issues you are day in, day out, which is a more aggressive, assertive China. So to me, that already loads the selection in favour of the US. I could be proven wrong on that, but to me, it'd be a very odd choice to pick the UK. Well, I think which nuclear submarine is a subject for another podcast. Um, right. Well, at, at I'll, I'll ask Olivia to pencil us in for a, a follow-up <laughs> interview on that. I'm getting the, the 10 minutes warning from Olivia, so we'll have to wrap it up there. But. Well, there's no hurry. We can do that podcast any time between now and 2040. <laughs> we'll end it there. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks, Marcus. As international travel begins to reopen... Digital vaccine passports are set to be a requirement in many parts of the world to prove your vaccination status. Jill Savage and Dr. Tegan Westendorf discuss the challenges for the rollout of vaccine passports and potential issues with interoperability and how to address cybersecurity risks. Really great to chat to you today, Jill. How are you doing? 
I'm well, thank you. I think it's also really timely as the east coast of Australia is coming out of these extended lockdowns. And I believe it was yesterday that our first international flights came into Melbourne and Sydney without quarantine. So really timely to be talking about digital vaccine passports, which I think is something that are not really broadly understood by many Australians. No, I think you're right. And I think the scenes that we saw at the airport and the references to love, actually the last thing that would be on people's mind would be a digital vaccine passport. So maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think there are certain things that are on people's minds that are, you know, perhaps a little bit more on the tentative side with this. And one thing for me was remembering the IBM census fail of 2016 and thinking about sort of how critical citizen trust is to successful implementation of this kind of digital tech solution in public health contexts. And I imagine that the government messaging being really transparent about the cybersecurity risks and solutions are pretty critical to the success of implementation and people feeling okay about it. What are your thoughts? Look, for me, I think people latch onto things around concerns and risks and security challenges when they don't quite understand why we're doing this, when they don't necessarily see this as the solution. And so, you know, I think there's a bit of work that needs to be done before we get to what does a digital vaccine passport look like to convince people that this is something that we need. And my husband reminded me in the days when we used to go traveling years ago, that we all had these little cards, which had our vaccination history stamped on them. And and we, oh, yeah, I'm a bit older than you. (laughs) But You know, that's the thing that you would tuck into your passport and you would take it with you whenever you went somewhere. And, you know, I'm not necessarily saying we should go back to that, but we really need to understand why we're doing this and we need to take people on the journey. And I think, you know, you mentioned this early on, there's a use for this. And I don't think we've yet understood who the users are because this has to work for them. Absolutely. Do you think that in terms of explaining that use, the general population hasn't been brought along the journey of this being a replacement for lockdowns? Look, I think we've had a little bit of that conversation, but I think there's a lot more to go. And I think as soon as you start saying something is digital, there's this immediate sort of distrust that then feeds misinformation and disinformation about whatever you want to pursue. We saw this with the digital health record. And I think by default, a lot of people have ended up with a digital health record because that was one of the ways in which they could access their vaccination history for COVID or their evidence of double vaccination. So, you know, by default, that's happening, but people didn't really see the need prior to this. So I think there are some lessons in previous programs that government has run. It's about understanding why you're trying to do something and articulate that need. And it's about engaging with key stakeholders, particularly to the users. And when I think about the users, one of the key users are people who work at airports, at businesses, you know, of all sorts of different kinds and sizes. What's their voice in this and how have we engaged with them? Because if it adds to more complexity, if it adds to queues at airports, that's not going to make people very happy and very inclined 
to actively engage with the travel, which is what we're trying to do. Absolutely. I think that kind of transparency is perhaps lacking or maybe it's unfair to say it's lacking and we just haven't had time to see that come through in government messaging yet. But thinking about the security aspect of it, I sort of thought, well, if you're going to have anything implemented digitally at a population level, there's going to be risks in terms of cybersecurity and that means there's going to be privacy risks. And that doesn't really concern me given that this is the first time this is being rolled out in Australia, first time it's being rolled out internationally, and that will mean that there will be vulnerabilities that are detected and that are responded to by the Australian government, by the governments of countries in the European Union that are 40 countries using one system together. So I wonder if there's something to be said for really clear acknowledgement of vulnerabilities and how they will be responded to. Look, I think that's assuming that those vulnerabilities are beyond the risk profile that we find acceptable. And I think we would do that if we rushed into something and we chased the shiny red button or whatever colour button it was. And there's a little bit of that in this for me. There's a little bit of seeking out a solution before we've worked out what the problem really is or how we do, in fact, need to solve the problem. If we go back several years to the introduction of e-passports, you know, they're based on some pretty robust standards that nations had to demonstrate that they were adhering to. And it took a long time for those to be put in place. And there were different aspects around the security challenges. So one was the security of the passport and the information itself. There was the security around the issuing of the passport, so the kind of processes that sat behind that. And there was also security involved in validating the individual and making sure that they were, in fact, somebody who needed to get a passport. There were a whole range of other aspects to this, but but there was one country who had the best quality, absolutely best quality, highest integrity passport that you could imagine, you know, very state-of-the-art, but its processes were really poor and you could access a valid, not a fraudulent, but a valid passport by engaging with their poor processes. So there's a whole lot of aspects to this. It's not just about the thing that you end up with in your hand. It's about all of the things that sit around that. And sometimes we've got to be mindful of those things in the beginning. So the phrase that when I was working in government and doing big transformations that I like to say, probably a little bit too much, was start with the end in mind. So, you know, really understand where you're trying to get to and start with that. And that will help you understand all the dimensions to it. If it's a government-issued arrangement, you know, I've got a lot of confidence in what people do in government around security arrangements and digital security, cybersecurity. As long as it is validated, as long as it's meeting a particular standard and that can be demonstrated, you know, particularly in Australia, government does this sort of thing very well. I think it's about the confidence in the broad and how other nations engage with this, how it's used in a national context, and all of those aspects that we're yet to work through. I really liked what you said about 
judging what an appropriate risk profile is because one of the things that springs to mind with me is that it's also not possible to be 100% secure in many analogue situations and we only need to watch not even very old movies to see passports with visibly sticking photos. And I can only <laughs> imagine how very forgeable they were. And so I think what matters for these passports is that these digital passports is how secure the cyber processes, systems and protocols are that support them. And that's built in with the safety design principle. And on that note, the Australian certificate is apparently state of the art. It meets the new global standards specified by the WHO and the International Civil Aviation Organization. And it really seems to have been developed and designed with privacy preservation in mind. So keeping that in mind and then thinking about these secure processes and protocols that you've described more broadly in terms of information validation, I feel very confident in this. Look, and I think we should be. I think there are some sort of aberrations to this one that don't necessarily relate to some other things that we've been doing in the past. And I think the whole idea of calling it a passport is an interesting one because even those potentially, those people who are not travelling might need this as a validation. I think there are aspects around interoperability between nations and being able to, you know, when someone turns up at our border with a supposedly a valid vaccination passport, what do we do with that and how do we engage with that and what confidence do we have in that? So I think there's a whole lot of dimensions that still need to be worked out. I'm quite confident in terms of what Australia might do. We do this stuff really well and we'll invest in it whether or not the population will get on board with it. And I think just to leave with you with one final note, when the e-passport came out, it was initially a voluntary thing. At a particular point in time, it became mandated. So not, not in the sense of you must have one, but in the sense of if you want a passport and you want to travel, you have to have one that looks like this. And, you know, there were all sorts of challenges around that in terms of a democratic society saying, essentially, this is the only way you can travel. Now, that was a long time ago and people got over that. But, you know, what's the modern day version of that and how does that apply to a vaccination passport? On that note of interoperability, I was really glad to hear that DFAT reported Australia will share this tech to help other interested countries develop and implement their own secure certificates. Looking at the way that the EU has shared so that they have that interoperability across jurisdictions and reduced vulnerabilities at borders, I think this is a really welcome indication of Australia helping other nations, especially in our region, to recover and return to normalcy after COVID, which at times has seemed to me a little shaky regarding vaccine sharing in our region, despite that desperate need. How difficult do you think it is to begin that process of sharing within the region? Look, I think in terms of Passports, e-passports generally, that's created a foundation upon which others can build upon. So if we use similar arrangements for this, I think it will be fine. We have to remember, though, that not everybody is 
at the same digital ready state that we are in Australia. And I think that will require us to understand a little bit more deeply about those nations that might be struggling, make no assumptions about what they are and provide some, you know, hands-on assistance to them to help them come up to speed on this as fast as they possibly can. Thanks so much, Jill. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tegan. That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you heard conversations with Dr. Robert Glasser, Head of ASPE's Climate and Security Policy Centre, and Anastasia Kapetis, National Security Editor at The Strategist. Dr. Marcus Hellyer, Senior Analyst, and Dr. Andrew Davies, Senior Fellow. Jill Savage, Senior Fellow with the Northern Australia Strategic Policy Centre, and Dr. Tegan Westendorf, Analyst with ASPE's Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program. Thanks for listening to Policy Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.